to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Carolyn, we are back. We're going to talk more about Murder on the Orient Express. And more to Emily Schwartz. Yay. Our super sweet guest. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Oh, oh I start, oh, Carolyn. <laughs> yes. Because we have a super sweet sponsor today. Mm-hmm. I love this sponsor. It's my favorite sponsor. It's Carolyn Daughters. <gasps> she runs... Game-changing corporate brand therapy workshops, teaches online marketing boot camp courses, and leads persuasive writing engine workshops. Carolyn empowers startups, small businesses, enterprise organizations, and government agencies to win hearts, minds, deals, and dollars. You can learn more at carolyndaughters.com. Thank you, Carolyn. Happy to do it. Thank you, future sponsors, for sponsoring our show in the future. Yeah, if you want your own on-air shout-outs, plus all kinds of freebies and love and attention, just let us know and we'll gladly incorporate you into our sponsor list. Yes, indeed. And we're also going to next incorporate our listener of the episode. This listener award goes to Helen Chandler from the United Kingdom. Thanks, Helen, for being such an amazing member of the Tea Tonic and Toxin Book Club. We appreciate you, and we'll be sending you a sticker all the way to the United Kingdom to bring you joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. And if you would like a sticker, and why wouldn't you? Who doesn't like stickers? All you've got to do is pretty much anything just share (laughs) or like or comment send us an email disagree with us start an argument whatever agree with us or agree with us what yes Yes. (laughs) you don't have to disagree Mm -hmm. um it it might be hard but um yeah you can find us at tea tonic and toxin on facebook and instagram subscribe so you never miss an exciting episode and as you're able, please give us your five-star reviews uh, wherever you get your pod- podcasts. I love that you clarify what kind of reviews we want. because yeah, Don't give us any nonsense reviews. You know, we could be asking for reviews and then we could get a bunch of stuff and think, wow, we really should have kept our <laughs> yeah. mouths shut. You won't get a sticker for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you will get a sticker for your five-star review. Yeah. Yes. If you want to argue, argue offline. Okay, not on a review. And That's where, bad for where can they find Tetonic and Toxin? Tetonicandtoxin.com. And what platforms are we on? I already said that. I said it, though. But no, but no. <laughs> but can Instagram. Just, just like. Oh, the podcast platforms. All of them, dude. Apple, Google, Spotify. If you go on Spotify, mm. um, we've been doing more polls. And I'm trying to create some opportunity to give us your opinions so go on there fill those out let us know what you think about whatever we're asking about i'm not super techie and podcasts are still new to me though i've been doing this for almost two years which is you know kind of interesting Uh, (laughs) 
But my understanding is we're everywhere. Yeah, we're on all of them. Yeah. All of them. That's where I was going. I wasn't going to have you repeat our Instagram. Sorry, I thought you didn't hear me. Instagram and Facebook, <laughs> at Tetonic and Toxin. I wasn't going to repeat that as I just did. <laughs> Sarah. Find us. Find <laughs> us. We're everywhere. All right. Well, today we have a guest, Emily Schwartz, and she was in our previous episode also on Murder on the Orient Express. Be sure to listen to both episodes. Let me tell you a little bit about Emily, who we're very excited about. From 2003 to 2014, Emily was the artistic director of and resident playwright for the Strange Tree Group, an immersive and mostly macabre theater company. Chicago Public Radio called the Strange Tree Group one of Chicago's most imaginative companies in both the visual and literary senses. For the trees, Emily penned The Three Faces of Dr. Crippen, which won the York Fringe Excellence Award and the Jeff Award, an honor given to outstanding theater artists in the Chicago area. Now, there was this forensic scientist who discovered that the remains of Cora Crippen might not actually be Cora Crippen, and he came to the opening night performance at Steppenwolf in 2011, and there Emily debated him on what actually happened with the murder. Super interesting. Other critically acclaimed productions include The Dastardly Ficus and Other Comedic Tales of Woe and Misery, Mr. Spackey, The Man Who Was Continuously Followed by Wolves, and The Mysterious Element. You can find productions of Emily's work across the country. The local Denver theater group, The Canamounts, for example, has performed both Dr. Crippen and Mr. Spackey. Today, Emily's mostly a professional event planner and mom to four-year-old Henry, to whom she is passing on her love of the strange and unusual. She recently wrote an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland for the Latin School of Chicago and is working on a children's book. Emily has known Sarah for, I don't know, approximately 50 or 60 years. At least. Mm, and we're thrilled to have Emily as today's guest to discuss Agatha's, Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. Welcome, Emily. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for Welcome. having me. Welcome. Yes. Welcome back. Thank you. You have quite the resume. It's been a fun few decades mm -hmm. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, definitely. Very cool. <laughs> And so we're going to get back into our conversation about murder on the Orient Express and Emily and all things mysterious. And to start that off, I'm going to read a short summary of murder on the Orient Express for the three or four people on the planet who don't know what happens in this book. Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express is one of the most famous detective novels ever written. Published in 1934, the story follows renowned Belgian detective Hercule Poirot, who embarks on a journey from Istanbul to Calais aboard the luxurious Orient Express. Just after midnight, a snowdrift stops the train in its tracks. By morning, it's discovered that an American tycoon named Ratchet has been murdered in his compartment. He's been stabbed a dozen times, even though his door was locked from the inside. With communications cut off from the outside world, Poirot agrees to investigate. Poirot quickly discovers Ratchet's true identity. Next, Poirot conducts interviews with a train filled with suspects, many of whom seem to have had connections to the victim. Poirot's brilliant deductive skills lead to a surprising and morally ambiguous ambiguous resolution, leaving readers to question the nature of right and wrong. 
Agatha Christie wrote 66 mystery novels, 33 starring Hercule Poirot. Her books are outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. Today, we're excited to talk about Murder on the Orient Express. It's our 11th book selection of 2023, and you can find more information about Murder on the Orient Express and all our 2023 book selections at teetonicandtoxin.com and on Facebook and Instagram at teetonicandtoxin. Emily... Hello. We were talking in the last episode a lot about um, kind of the the movies that mm-hmm. were based on this book. Um, and you have recently written an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. And I have recently finished reading <laughs> the, the actual book to my son. My daughter was less interested. She mm. was th- she was around, but mm. <laughs> less interested. Um, and that seems really hard. I wanted to ask you about adaptations. Um, yeah, no, I don't t- tend to do adaptations. It was a special request originally from the Latin school. Um, they originally reached out to me and did the adaptation about ten years ago, and then they re-reached out again to say, "Hey, can we?" Can we work on it again and adjust some things? A few different schools have done the adaptation since then. Uh, it's very focused on the original text because that's what the school requested. So it was really a partnership and working with Frank Schneider, who's the theater director at the Latin School. We worked together. He gave me kind of a clear view of 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 what they wanted, which is, you know, super, like, very Lewis Carroll version of Alice in Wonderland. So that language that very reminiscent of the book, but they also had in the original um, cast 30 students who were going to appear in it. So it was my job to sort of think through, okay, um, how do 30 different people tell the story of Alice in Wonderland? So in my style, I tend to do a lot of chorus work. So it's like kind of Greek chorus style. Um, of the of narrators for Alice in Wonderland. So mm-hmm. every kid had a line. Every kid had more than one line apart. They switched characters. You know, you might be a narrator at the beginning, but then you're playing the Queen of Hearts or you're you're a narrator, but then you transition into um, the Dormouse. So, you know, so the Alice remains the same throughout. The White Rabbit remains the same throughout. But all of the kids get a chance to be actual characters in the story. All the animals that fall into the pool. You, you're a narrator, but you're a dodo bird. So it, it really is not just the fact that maybe you come on and carry a glass of water. I wanted the kids to actually be able to, if you're in the play, you're really in the play. You're building the world. So it's a, it's a true like use of the text to get everybody to get familiar with that language, to kind of embody it, to have fun. The Latin school also brought in, um, and I can't remember, I'm I'm sorry, this time or last time, the Actors Gym of Chicago has been a part of it before, so it's acrobatic as well. So there's that body movement, and Alice is falling down the hole, and kids are carrying her through the through the alleys of the theater and there's a lot of tumbling and lifting and you know kids are becoming trees so it's it's kind of a it was really interesting to think about it that way because it's another story now that we're talking about murder on the orient express who doesn't know alice in wonderland right Right. so how do you take alice in wonderland where everyone's like okay she's gonna go down that rabbit hole and make it a little bit different and um it was tricky in that respect to think, oh God, Alice in Wonderland, like who doesn't know this? How do I do it differently than it's already been done? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was fun to do that. And it, it like the real joy of it comes from seeing how 
how involved all of the kids get to be in the production. So there's, they're not just standing off to the side and moving a tree. They're really in it. So mm-hmm. that was fun to do the adaptation that way. That's awesome. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, like, is it based? How based it was it in the literature versus what people are most familiar with is not the literature. It's the Disney movie. Um, mm-hmm. Which is the case with a lot of stories. We it all is. know the Disney version of that story. Because you've, Sarah, talked yeah. about Grimm's fairy tales. And- well, yeah, I'm a, so I'm kind of a children's literature stickler mm-hmm. with my kids. We don't watch the movie until we've read the book. And mm-hmm. so I re- I've read a lot of these books. And wow, mm-hmm. they are wildly different mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. what Disney came up with for the movie. And so... I, how does that process work? Like, how do you decide what to leave out, what to pull in, what kind of distills the essence of something? It is, it's really hard because Disney's super fun, right? So Disney's written, you know, to take aspects of the story, but make it appealing to kids. And they, you know, you want to buy the merchandise, you want to see it again, it's very colorful, it's very funny. I think that in terms of the adaptation, that's you know, very non-Disney is trying to put the humor into how how the chorus is communicating the actual words of Lewis Carroll. So there's commentary within it. So I do add my own spin on it. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just me like taking chunks from Alice in Wonderland and throwing it on a page. It's 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 specific kind of thoughtful, witty, funny commentary about. Lewis Carroll's words and then kind of mixing the two together. So it's hard when you think, because I grew up on the Disney version too. Mm-hmm. I, as a child, I, in fact, obsessively watched it. So <laughs> try, try, yeah. trying to kind of rejigger my brain to the original text was, was hard. Um, but I think it worked out really well. How yeah. did you think of, what did you think of the, had you read it before, Sarah? No, I hadn't. And I, what'd you think? It's wild. It's, <laughs> it's it's not an easy book to read. Um, and I have an annotated copy. So mm. I got it actually for, it has uh, like a compilation, not just of the original illustrations, but of like so many illustrators who have done illustrations of it over time. I actually got it for Halloween costume inspiration mm. a few years ago. <laughs> um, you know, all the way from the original illustrator to like Ralph Steadman, who did the illustrations for Pink Floyd and stuff. They've all done Alice. Mm-hmm. But what I'm reading, I'm trying, I'm trying to read. And so fear and loathing in the in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did all that. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, like, mm-hmm. I'm reading, and then I'm also kind of reading these sidebar notes, and the notes are blowing my mind. Like Lewis Carroll was so smart, so literary. Mm-hmm. It's going in these directions and making arguments. I'm like, oh, I had no idea that what this was about. <laughs> That's the thing. If you didn't have, I, I, I would love to read what you have because just thinking through, yeah. it's it's topical for the time, right? The jokes mm-hmm. make sense for the time. So trying to explain to current, you know, 2023 high school students why this joke was funny and what the right. mouse is talking about with his tail is really, you know, like there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> so it's, right. it's definitely an interesting process. Mm-hmm. A lot of his poetry was making fun of current day mm-hmm. children's poetry. Mm-hmm. And I recently went to a, an exhibition at a, um, at a school where they were quoting Lewis Carroll's poetry. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's making <laughs> fun of children who have to quote poetry. Mm-hmm. For oh, school. <laughs> Do they know that? Is that like, you know, meta or is it an accident? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it seems, it seems really hard. I don't know. Um, 
did that process and maybe it kind of came through in our last discussion about the movies, like the way that different movies kind of try and take the author's original work and turn it into something theatrical and, and what you run into there in terms of, I can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard or it doesn't translate. Here's, well, yeah. So one example from Murder in the Orient Express is there's also a BBC, I think BBC version, Ooh. a TV series, right? And so um, David Suchet stars in that version and he plays Poirot and at the end of murder on the Orient Express, he is sort of conflicted about the ending. He knows who he knows 12 people committed this murder and at 13th was involved and he is going to walk away, but you see on his face, you see him standing there and looking out in the distance and you, you get how upsetting this is to him that this was not the way to achieve justice in mm. his mind. That's not in the book, Mm-mm. but that was a decision that was made when they were creating this television series version. And so I think, Emily, I mean, for you with Alice in Wonderland, with Murder in the Orient Express, with any adaptation, to some degree, it's not just, you know, how do I make it different? But it's like, what is my goal? What do I mm-hmm. want viewers to take away? And how do I get them there? So, you know, like kind of what you were describing is, how do I get these children to understand this? And how do I get them to feel this? And for the te- television series, it was important for one reason or another for them to, to for, for viewers to feel like Poirot is not the sort of guy who just waves away murder and says, hey, 12 of you, thumbs up. It's fine. It makes sense. No problem. Because we don't really get that depth of of character in the book, but we do get it in the TV series, which is, I think, really interesting, an interesting choice. And I guess maybe the word choice is where I'm sort of landing is there you're making choices all Mm -hmm. along the way. No, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is definitely um, interesting, especially take something so well known and put your own voice or stamp onto it and and how do you think it should be viewed and how funny is it actually mm-hmm. how emotional is it is there you know so it's yeah. that's that's always so interesting because I'm, I'm i'm definitely as a as a person and as a writer i'm used to having you know the ability to just have my initial instinct on the page versus having to think about how somebody else wanted their work to be portrayed so mm. it's definitely interesting in that respect well can i um, can i like ask you then like, how, how do you handle, um, you know, if you're doing something different than what's in the book, and you know, because you're putting your spin on it, to what degree, if any, do you or whoever's doing the, you know, Poirot TV series, to what degree do you have a responsibility to honor the text with the idea that people may not even ever go back to the text? So they see this thing. And then they mm-hmm. think, ah, oh, this is Alice in Wonderland, or ah, oh, you know, this is Murder on the Orient Express. And it may it may be different than the actual text. And so is there a responsibility there? Or do people, do viewers have a responsibility to go back to source material and, and actually, you know, dare I say it, read? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is absolutely, you know, go back to the source if you want the true story, right? So especially with something like Crippen that we were talking about previously, where there is a ton of 
mystery behind it because mm-hmm. I don't know Crippen. He's dead. I don't know his just true story. I don't know his motivation of making it up. But I can kind of do my best version of it from the documents that I have and the interviews and the court transcripts and things that I've taken from. And so um, in terms of Orient Express, just, you know, having read the book and having seen Agatha Christie's interpretation of Poirot having that initial reaction to this character, Mm -hmm. the initial reaction of this is an evil person. So I don't know why he's just evil and I'm walking past him to get to the point at the end where the character is sort of like, okay, well, we're going to button it up and, uh, you know, we've made a choice. Good day to everyone. It really doesn't (laughs) feel like there's (laughs) like a deep, uh, this choice that was made for the miniseries or whatever BBC was that, you know, I haven't seen that version. If there is this more actor choice and who knows if that was in the script or if that was the actor mm-hmm. or director kind of making that choice yeah. for the yeah. show. There's so many different like fingers in the pot. Um, it's cur- It's interesting to think like, who was the one who sort of said, this needs a little more gravitas. We got to give Poirot, um, have him have pause over this. Yeah. Uh, versus saying, this is clearly a terrible person. I'm glad he's dead. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> sounds good to me. Thumbs up. And it's Let's in a it's, it it's in a later season of this of the TV series. So mm-hmm. they had already had a chance in many seasons to develop this character. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was a way to honor the character as he had evolved in the series. Mm-hmm. But it's I mean, it's really interesting. So I think it's um, Monsieur Book and um, Dr. Constantine, uh, Constantine and Poirot, they're, they're the judges and jury here. They're the ones who can say, we're going to hold you accountable. The Serbian police are going to show up any minute. And, or we're going to say that somebody fled the train. We don't, you know, nobody on this train committed, committed a murder. And so it puts them in a, a really interesting either power position or potentially like uncomfortable position because who wants to be the guy who's like hey um i know there's three of us who have to decide and i hate to be this guy but (laughs) i really kind of feel like this should have gone in front of a jury and so you know like i don't know it's it's a it's a really interesting ending it is it leans hard you know what is it this is you know like moral versus the right solution of, of you know like like what it, the correct solution of who actually murdered this because he lays it all out there he's like i know you all did it and it's a direct choice to say like moralistically i'm fine with letting everyone on this train get away with stabbing a man to death in the yeah. middle of the night yeah like because <laughs> mm-hmm. as retribution for another horrible crime that i didn't witness and you know through the court system he was deemed not guilty so right. it's is there is that why Murder on the Oriented Express continues to this day to be, you know, top five mystery novels of all mm. time because of this sort of like emotional versus factual choice? Is that yeah. present in other mystery novels where you're sort of presented with the solution? And I'm sure it is. I just, you know, yeah. I don't know if you two have experienced that before of, of that kind of quandary. Where- where a detective figures something out and then they have a decision to make. Mm-hmm. Do I, do I reveal the truth or do I hide the truth? And mm-hmm. in the TV series, it really feels as if he's going to hide the truth. He's going to do it, but he's going to carry that to his grave it, through the mm-hmm. language he uses, the actual verbal language, body language, 
all, all of it, you get this sense that I'm going to let this pass, but I I will, you know, looks to the sky sort of thing, but I will pay for this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. You bring up a, a really good example of where maybe this, and Emily, you, you made an interesting point. Like um, when you're in sort of a theatrical production, there are so many fingers in the pot than there are as a sole novelist who like doesn't even take interviews mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like, <laughs> like Agatha Christie um but that is one instance several times in the book I was like what's with Poirot <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like Ratchet approaches him from the very beginning and he's like I think someone's gonna kill me can you mm-hmm. you know help you know mm-hmm. I know who you are you wonderful amazing detective and he's like nah I don't like like your face. Mm -hmm. And so what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean I don't care if you die? Does that mean? That's a deep question, (laughs) right? He doesn't really know who this person is. It's the aura of evil around the character. A character has really not done anything that evil. Is he that (laughs) confident in his ability to read someone and his like, is in the book, you know, he's, he is, he's that confident that he's reading mm-hmm. is correct mm-hmm. and that whatever does happen to this person is on them. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's not going to divert that though. It's in his power. The very next day he's dead. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm thinking like me, I would have been like, Oh no, I could have helped someone. And I said, no. And now he's dead. But Poirot is like, nah, I'll, like, yeah. I'll help solve the mystery of his murder. So though. what if Poirot had misread him? Like, <laughs> exactly. right. can, can we read evil on someone's face? I mean, have you have either of you ever just you've seen someone you've met someone you're on a train yourself, you walk through the car, and you see someone and it's evil personified? Well, it's hard to I- get confirmation. Yeah, it's hard to get. Well, the Poirot didn't have confirmation either, and he said, "No, I will not." I've seen crazy. I don't know about you two, but if you look at, and I don't. This is totally along this line of: Was I right? Was Mm -hmm. this person crazy? I've had that confirmed. Mm -hmm. Where you're looking at someone and you're sort of thinking, "Okay, you're going to come and interview for me, or or we're going to work together," or I and I get you know some information about you beforehand, and I see a photo and I say. You have crazy wet eyes. Are you the, are you crazy in person? And then, <laughs> yes, in fact, they do end up being a bit. So, like, there's there's something mm-hmm. about that ability as a human to sort of read facially, or like a, like mm-hmm. a gut feel, a gut feeling okay. of a of a human. Mm-hmm. But I mean, honestly, in the complete same story have been totally wrong you know where that gut feeling has been you know i'm like oh why 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 did he even think that what a wonderful human mm-hmm. um so yeah you're exactly right what if Poro had just been wrong and he yeah. was you know the macy's santa claus or something <laughs> um the fact that he had these letters mm-hmm. threatening him mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um and i know there's kind of a back and forth of replacing the letters and who wrote the letters and all of that you know we're following the letters throughout the whole story can I ask, since you are both now super familiar with this book, <laughs> why why did they take the time to write the letters? If they want to like <laughs> sub- <laughs> if they're like why are they why are they <laughs> warning him <laughs> about murdering right, him? Right. And it, it, like what's is there's, there's nobody that's trying to really warn him. It's simply is it just sort of just to mentally terrify and him? And to mess with him? Back? 
that they're coming? I'm like, is this the Countess just writing a book? She's like, just really, you know, stress him out, get him mentally. <laughs> but like, wouldn't you not want someone to know that you're coming to murder them if you're creating a murder plot? I, that's a good question because the one letter they attempted to destroy, right? The one that identifies Daisy Armstrong's name. Yeah. And so you would think if the the plot hinges on some stranger on the train who murders him, why wouldn't the letters be coming from yeah. some stranger who says that business deal we had in New York two years ago, like make up the thing that the reason why they would kill him. I think exactly. that's, that's very pragmatic. I'm reminded of like every movie ever where the villain stops before he executes the hero and explains to him what's going to happen (laughs) and why he's going to kill him and how he deserves it you know like it's they just really need to get that off their chest even though it ends up being their undoing (laughs) they need Cassetti to know that it was them like without that that letter they never would have known it was Cassetti yeah Yeah. whole 12 group of 12 where they're like he's gotta know it's us also, I guess, Mike, like, in terms of seeing them on the train, mm. maybe you don't recognize everyone, an entire group of people who you have formed. Maybe you're just scorning so many people and ruining so many lives mm-hmm. that it's just too many faces to remember. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if he's really kind of looking around and thinking, hey, <laughs> I, yeah. I know every single person on this train. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, it's been decades at this point, I know, from in the story. So mm-hmm. uh, it's been it's been years, not okay. decades. Hasn't I think. Decade? Just a okay. handful of years. The uh-huh. younger younger sister um Girl, is, she grew up and got married. Yeah. So yeah, she started out like a minute. I think it's maybe five years. Okay. Um but then so if we think of an actual judge and jury, that's one reason why people make an argument, I want it to go to court. I want to have my day in court. I want to be able to confront Mm -hmm. this person who committed this crime. I want him to hear from the judge that justice, you know, will be served and he or she will, you know, be in prison for the rest of their lives or or whatever, whatever the punishment is. And so maybe the letters are because, okay, he is drugged. Mm-hmm. He is not aware he's being stabbed ostensibly, right? Even the first stab, he's just not aware of it. And the first stab, depending on who did it, may have killed him. We don't know which stab, which of the stabs killed him. But maybe this is the way to say, well, we're taking all of the reveal out of it, and he doesn't get to live in fear for even a second. So we have to send him these letters. So even though we're going to drug him, even though he's, we're going to stab him in his sleep, he will know. He will live in fear until such time as this event happens. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's not the pragmatic choice. But it, if I had received the letters like that, I would maybe change my travel plans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd have I'd have a security guard, you know, I wouldn't just have this secretary and this valet or who were you know, in on butler. it. Yeah, who were both in on it. Um but have I would a better- have hiring practice or you know like you got to just do a little bit give a deeper dive in your interview process (laughs) and i don't know that it would be like randomly on a train i would see this belgian detective and say 
that's the guy I'm going to get to protect me. Like I'd have a different guy with me probably on the train. He'd be standing guard outside the door or even inside the room or whatever the thing is. You got that thug criminal money, the mastermind money. So you can easily (laughs) hire somebody from Istanbul to. Exactly. So why was, yeah, he was sort of, I don't know, careless, careless with his own life. Was. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, okay. I love travel. I, Sarah, I know you love travel. Mm. Emily, I, I, I suspect you love travel. I do love travel. <laughs> oh. See, I was able Correct. to read your face much the same. <laughs> yes, I was able to. I was. I looked at your face and I was like, she's a traveler. Like she's got crazy eyes, but she loves travel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this story, anytime I've seen the movies, I've read the book. All I want to do, so I've researched this. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. how do I get this Orient Express train? And so they started, <laughs> he starts in Syria. Okay. So he, he's catching the um, Istanbul to Calais, and then he's going Calais to London. But to get to Istanbul, he's starting in Syria, which is hard to do these days. Mm-hmm. So it's a diff- mm-hmm. much different world in 1934. And the whole route, um, you know, I printed a picture f- for us with yeah. this route and I, I'm ready to follow the route. I'm mm-hmm. ready to get off at each city and do a, you know, one to two night, get back on the train. I want all the luxury, by the way. So yeah. I want... Um, None of the cost. Yeah. N- yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. Yes. And not the $30,000 a night or whatever the cost is. So that, you know, um, somehow I'm awarded this, you know, we get podcast of the year or something like that. And, and it's like, what would you like for your, your prize? And we say... We would like to ride the Orient Express train yeah, from Istanbul. But yeah, I mean, it makes me want to travel. How how did you both feel about, was there a romance to the train travel for either of you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have a Pinterest board with Orient Express. Mm. Oh, do you? Tagged for years. Yeah, no, this has been a, like a dream. We should put the link journey. in the show notes. Can we link to yeah. your Pinterest yeah. board? It was, yeah. you know, like many of the routes were offline for years and they've actually revamped several of the cars. So I started out in the early 2000s able to take the Orient Express in my mind and then it, it paused for many years and it was very sad to look at like oh it's not no longer available but it's it's come back ladies and gentlemen so you awesome do so again it's like my grandmother traveled so frequently when i was younger and she was sort of my um my travel muse mm-hmm. really so watching mm-hmm. her um when i was growing up in the 80s she was a teacher for many many years but her dream was just always to see the world and my grandpa didn't really like to travel so Mm. she'd take a girlfriend and say okay well we're gonna go you know to stonehenge or let's Mm. go to venice or we're going to you know budapest or something like Mm. she she was always across the globe seeing these Mm. kind of wonderful and fantastic places and then coming back with way too many pictures of mostly sheep so, <laughs> there's a lot of long there. views a lot of long views from the windows of moving coaches of, of sheep um <laughs> she also took me on my first mini world tour when i graduated from high school so that mm. was her gift to all of her grandchildren was taking them wherever they wanted to go in the world and my cousin and i graduated in the same year and we chose this sort of around Europe starting in London and making the making the rounds mm-hmm. for, to Strasbourg to Munich mm-hmm. to Venice so like to Paris to do that that world baby world tour which mm-hmm. was so fortunate to be able to to do something like that at mm-hmm. such a young age mm-hmm. um 
so yeah, I'd love it. I'd love to travel more um, again, uh, especially, you know, I love traveling with girlfriends. So Sarah and I have been talking about mm. what do we what do we do next? And we both have pretty young children. So <laughs> I was like, old mom, young kid. Yeah. Um, it's a, <laughs> it's so a my- narrow genre yeah. <laughs> of travel. It is. It is. So I, I, I used to travel pretty frequently with friends up until like baby time. And, mm-hmm. and now that he's a little bit older, there's, um, I think the, op- the it's on the horizon again yeah. to start traveling. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a major train lover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned your grandma. I think my grandma was also like a travel inspiration for me. Like she went to Egypt. She would always bring mm. me back these cool little souvenirs and things. And um, my first international travel was with my grandma. Hmm. Yeah. Does it make you that, like nostalgic for the thing that you didn't have, which is traveling in a time where every location is really so true to itself versus now you kind of would travel out and there's a Subway sandwich shop and, you know, <laughs> Lucerne and you're like, oh, well, I guess I can go to the Subway or, the you know, get the same tuna that I would get in Indiana. I mean, so you I'm just, can, but I, yeah. of course you don't. If you no. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, That's I'll admit cool. I have gone, I have gone to the McDonald's in Moscow and that is because it is nothing like the McDonald's in America. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I was so tired. I, I went to Singapore for work recently and I found myself in the airport on the last day and that McDonald's was there. And it's one of my great shames that I've just admitted to you on this podcast is that, <laughs> I, that I hate a McDonald's breakfast. Was it the <laughs> same or was it different though? It was. It was, it was the, the same? same. Oh, wow. No. Yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, so like that, I can't believe that I said that out loud and to your lovely listeners. That's what an embarrassing <laughs> thing to admit. Um, but a- normally, Emily yes. Schwartz, folks, if you want to write. She's off the podcast. <laughs> yes, it's only me weird. now, folks. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 Goodbye, listeners. Emily and My- I have both been kicked off <laughs> yeah. the podcast. So this, Sarah's going <laughs> to see, see us out solo. Here. I'm just going to monologue all mm. for you. <laughs> You traveled by train too, Sarah, right? Like you oh, did yeah. supercar recently. Yeah, I'm a huge train lover. Um, I would say my my first train was actually through Russia, mm-hmm. and so I've also, mm-hmm. in addition to the Orient Express, I've been looking up the Siberian Express, but that is not offered in today's current climate. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll come back again one day, like sure. the Orient Express. But yeah, yeah. I took um, Denver has a great train um, goes straight through to San Francisco. So we took that as an overnight sleeper car. I was hoping for a little more space. I'll be honest. I was yeah. I was pregnant at the time, so I was also hoping for a little bit more pillows. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Never either of those, but it was kind of cool. You know, you get to sit, watch. It's an area of the country that's gorgeous, and you kind of fold out your beds at night. Um, it was interesting in, in the book to kind of hear about how the conductor really provides mm-hmm. a lot of service in terms of coming and making up your beds while you're at dinner. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, that does sound useful, actually. It does. Yeah. It took me yeah. a minute with the Vagan Lee conductor and the language in the book. And especially since I was listening to it this mm-hmm. time, I was like, what the hell is a Vagan Lee conductor? Like, <laughs> it just means sleeping car conductor. <laughs> the, the wagon, the sleeping car compartment conductor. So that took me. <laughs> it took me longer than it should to realize yeah. who the heck that person was. Yeah. Um, 
I've done a sleeper car when I was little. My grandfather worked for the railroad, so we were really fortunate to be able to hmm. travel that way back and forth. I had cousins who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, so we'd hmm. go from the Midwest to Albuquerque and see. I just remember like being on the top bunk and looking out the window in the nighttime and seeing the countryside roll by, and mm. suddenly we were in the mountains. And it was it, it is beautiful and romantic. Mm-hmm. I don't know nowadays. My child mind has it as as this romantic experience mm-hmm. of travel. When we heard that on the train too, Nate and I were on there and and people were on the train saying, I was on this train as a child. Mm -hmm. Oh, how much I loved it. And we'd like to take our kids on the train. How old were you? Because that's what I'm not sure. Like, when are you old enough such that it's cool to be on the train and not like painful? Two is too young. (laughs) I was young. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I was probably five, Five. I want to say. Yeah. And then sense. when we were older, we didn't do the sleeping car anymore. We But we did the overnight in the seats. I would not recommend yeah, that's, that. Mm, that's like, hard. That is so it hard. Was a, yeah. It was a, we had a huge storm in the middle of, um, oh God, I, I, we were probably maybe in Colorado. I'm not sure because I remember I was surrounded by mountains and the, the train started to fill up with water, the actual train car, the Amtrak, because it was oh. raining so hard. It was raining in through the door and the aisle was like a little river. And so all of our feet were up on the seats oh and it's the middle goodness. of the night and the train is rocking through the mountains. It was very much, it was a very, it was an excellent murder mystery um, scenario. Yeah. So. Setting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that I worked on the train as well. I do. In Alaska. Alaska. <laughs> yeah. So that was exciting. That was an exciting bit of work. They actually let me go all the way to the front, to the engine, and stand on the front of the engine, mm-hmm. outside of the engine, mm-hmm. and like Whoa. go through the canyons and stuff. It was rad. I loved it. I love their lack of um, safety. They must have had good insurance for you. On yeah, well, it's like, <laughs> it's like the Alaskan guide handshake or something. If you're helping tourists in Alaska, you get to do everything in for free. So, right. yeah, I did Jeep tours, I did helicopter tours, I did everything, because it's, it's just this reciprocal thing. And if it was your lucky day, the conduct- and the conductor liked you, he'd let you walk forward to the front of the Alaska Railroad and just stand up think there. about the wagon lead conductor on this book having to sit in that little chair <sighs> all night <laughs> and, and wait to see if the bell rang. Mm-hmm. You know, like what what people needed is sparkling water, basically, at that point in time. It's like, oh, it's 3 a.m., but I need a sparkling water. I kind of like that they had the same brand of sparkling. Is this still like Perrier he was getting? I don't remember. I think it was a well, Perrier. Maybe it was. I remember. Yeah, because I was like, hey. And somebody <laughs> in this book is drinking Bass beer. Oh. No, not this one. <laughs> it really? No, it was a different beer, a different book. Are you sure? Yeah, because you mentioned that about a different book. Oh. I don't think it was this My one. books are all running together in my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Just yeah. yeah. Well, it did remind me of our past conversation about the other books and how were the other detectives. And I was thinking about Perry Mason, right? Mm. Whose like moral compass is the legal system. Like he would never, I think, have chosen to let anyone off the hook. He would have been like, okay, well, <laughs> it's going to have to be decided in court. It's going to have to be decided by the legal system. That's mm-hmm. not up to me to... If Perry Mason were to have a moralistic choice, like a split, let's say he said it has to be decided by the legal system, but who would take the fall? It's going to be the mother, right? Or the grandmother because of the knife and the sponge bag. I think it depends right? on who he's representing. 
he's not necessarily interested in who is taking the fall, except that he's Mm -hmm. interested in doing everything he can to get his client off and giving them the best argument possible. So if he was Mm -hmm. representing Mrs. Hubbard, he'd get her off. Yeah. If he was representing uh, Cassetti, he would get him off. Get him off. (laughs) (laughs) He he wouldn't make a moral choice. His moral choice is, I have to do the best to defend my client. The right thing for his client. Yeah. Yeah, It's very different. Um. There's that movie, The Fugitive, if you ladies recall, it's Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And there's a scene where Harrison Ford is escaping. Tommy Lee Jones catches up to him and there's sort of like a gulf or some sort of ravine or something between them. And Harrison Ford yells to Tommy Lee Jones, I'm innocent. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. Because <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones, his job, his yep. his moral compass is, I get you. And then somebody else figures out what mm-hmm. to do with you. But it's not my job to figure out whether you're the real deal or not. You know, and here, three guys make a decision. You know, Poirot and, and two other guys, they make a decision. What did you, th- what did you think about? him pro- sort of proposing the alternate story of because he proposes the alternate story and then immediately the other two guys are like no that's not what happened that's impossible and he's like I don't know you might like it mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they come back to the alternate story what did, What would you have done whether you were Perot or one of the other three deciders mm-hmm. would you well, go with the alternate I- story I would go with the alternate story. I'm not going to lie. I, I I think I've turned to be like, it's fun. It's funny. Cause it's like my moral judgment on you versus versus facts. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to pretend that I, the story resonates because it seems like an obvious moral choice. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, we know this is true. And, but I'd love to see somebody tear it apart, though, too. It's like, how do we know this is true? What's the other side of the Cassetti story? You know, like, maybe, like, is there an alternate version out there where it's like, okay, how did he get off? We know they say he got off because he basically paid people off or his mm-hmm. money got him off. There's no there's no really other, like, descriptor of how he got off or why he was acquitted of this crime, so correct? What there? If, mm-hmm. No, there's not. And so what if, what if he didn't have a pure evil face? What if he had the ace you know face of a an angel Mm -hmm. well so is that a cop-out for agatha christie to make him have a face of pure evil so that as readers when we hear the end we're we're buying in because well evil deserves this particular Mm -hmm. fate i mean what i don't know to me that felt a little bit a little bit like a cop-out I don't know. I felt like she was building up to me, like, just almost the superhumanity of Perot. Like, that goes back to the beginning. Like, I don't like your face. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like your face so much that you can die. (laughs) I will not intervene. You know, your life is your own. I have nothing to do with it. Um, And he he sticks by that decision the whole way through. He never second guesses himself. He never questions it. Like, his, his read is his read, and he's that's what he's going with. And mm-hmm. it, I think he feels, you know, vindicated once he realizes yeah. this is Cassetti. Throughout the rest of the stories of like Perot's story, is, is it moralistically, like, are there other, is most, like, is it mostly like a moral judgment as well as a, a logical deduction? Or is this the only one where it's like, okay, 
I, I, I don't know because we're talking about Murder on the Orient Express. Now I need to deep dive into the 30 <laughs> some other Poro books yeah. to have yeah. insight into that. But it's curious is like, is that an aspect of his character? Is he that cares. he's moralistically judging you, you know, he, as well? I won't say which book because I don't want to give anything away, but he does, mm-hmm. he does let uh, a murderer commit suicide. He doesn't turn mm. him in. He's like, eh, right. here's what happened. This is between you and I. I'll tell the police tomorrow. And he just sort of implies that you would rather kill yourself and save your family this embarrassment. <laughs> and, mm. and so, I mean, he does that. Mm-hmm. And there okay. was the, the other book we read where he said it's like, he kind of handled the case in a bizarre way. And he said it was for um, like the love of a woman. Or yeah. how did he hmm. put that? It was like, basically, so this couple would get back together. So there is an emotional aspect to his He's he's a human being. He's yeah. a complex in in his mm-hmm. own way. I mean, none of the no Agatha Christie character I don't think comes off the page as super three dimensional. You know, you, you know everything about them or know as much about them as as one can. Mm-hmm. I don't feel, but he, he Sherlock Holmes comes across from what we've read as somebody who um, loves the thrill of the chase. He loves figuring out who did it. He wants to reveal that criminal. He wants, he wants that, that intellectual challenge. Poirot also wants, Mm -hmm. I think, justice. Mm -hmm. Well, he likes the puzzle too. I think he's, I think he's more interested in the puzzle. And on the train, he's like, kind of like, Oh good. I was getting bored. I'll take the case. I wouldn't take the case to protect him, but I will take the case now that he's dead. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating book in that respect because you, when you think about this book and how, how it's posed, and I wonder about if this is why maybe the movie adaptation isn't as successful because it's a lot of interviews, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. just sitting in a room and you're, as a reader experiencing Poirot, listen and take in information mm-hmm. and you're it's, it's him interviewing different people in this book there's there's obviously 12 of them and a 13th right so it's sort of like it's a lot of it's a lot of storytelling and it's so fascinating to me at the end of it when he calls out the moments of when he a character cued him into the fact that they may not have been who they said they were because the moments are very very subtle it's like mm-hmm. with the with mm-hmm. the german where he asked her about her cooking have uh-huh. all of your yes. like your cooking yeah. and she said oh yes all my ladies like my cooking but then as a lady's maid no one would have ever experienced exactly. really her cooking like she's there to dress them and do other things but mm-hmm. to my current day mindset i don't know what a lady's maid does so <laughs> I, I made Maybe in the 30s, I would have read that and said, like, pause. Like, this woman wouldn't have been cooking. Why is this but... lady's maid cooking? <laughs> exactly. To me now, I'm like, sounds good. Great cook. So uh, <laughs> something that may have been more of a a piece of information to tweeze out yeah. historically is now something yeah. that just went right over my head. Mm-hmm. When he called it out, it made sense at the end, obviously. But it's fascinating that it just sort of, like, builds until this final... Poirot moment of let me just break it all yes. down. Yes, there yeah. is always that. Uh, yeah. All the Poirot yeah. books have that. Mm-hmm. He okay. like gathers everyone, mm-hmm. lays it out. Mm-hmm. Were there things that stuck out to you as constant m- mystery readers that were 
huge tells. I know, Carolyn, you said, like, it's so obvious to me. Like, this was, <laughs> you know, like, clearly, like, you are in it. Like, you're, like, in the mystery genre. You love it. For someone that's more of a novice, I love mystery, but mm-hmm. I am not going to say that I have, like, the deepest knowledge of all the different books. So your podcast, A, number one, is so great to get me reading things that I would not have normally picked up. So thank you, ladies, for that. But it's sort of, like, what were the the biggest tells to you and I think we touched on this maybe in the last episode a little bit but I'm just like I'm so curious with these bits and pieces that have been pulled out yeah for, for me it's that every so he hearkens to America and he says where else could there be all of these different people mm-hmm. on this train represented so then once he realizes America then he is thinking about Daisy Armstrong's child that was killed and he then looks at every element of the Daisy Armstrong case, in- including the people involved, and starts situating a cast of characters. This person could be this, could could be, mm-hmm. Mrs. Hubbard could have been the mother. You know, Dragomirov was the godmother. We know that. This person could have been the cook. This person, and he's able to sort of place everybody in a cast of characters once he understands the setting, America, and the situation, Daisy Armstrong, which is um, brought to light through Mm -hmm. that note that is discovered. And so once the reader starts figuring out that every person on this, in this car, in this not very packed car, had a connection to this family. It's either the best or the worst written mystery in the world. (laughs) (laughs) That should be on the cover of the book. Yeah. I mean, you're like, this this book is crazy. You know, does she really think her readers are so stupid that, oh, 12 different people accidentally all booked the same car from Istanbul (laughs) to, to France, you know, really, really. And, um, so then you flip that around and you do just as Poirot did. And he said, the impossible has to be possible. I at first said, well, they all can't be in it. Or it maybe really they is, all can. It's just an accident that Poirot is there on this train. Yeah. right? It's like, oops, oh, no. Greatest detective of all time happens to be yeah. on your train. It's just a series of bad accidents that keep happening to them. And, mm-hmm. Oh, no, the snowstorm has happened. The train mm-hmm. is snowed in. Because yeah. really, yeah. their initial plan isn't half bad, mm-hmm. right? Except for the guy already brought up their mysterious and unnecessary letters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, if you're just sort of like, you know... It's another thing of like what a what a joy to murder someone back in history because really there's no like <laughs> catalog of your train tickets yeah. other than paper that you can throw into a fireplace. Right. Um, so if you, you and know, and no all, camera in the hallway watching yeah. twelve people all enter one yeah. by one exactly no one's really cataloging <laughs> your 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 movements at that point in time mm-hmm. you you bought a ticket and it's lost to time that mm-hmm. I'm really impressed with their ability to organize twelve individuals in one travel schedule and actually make it to Istanbul yeah. yeah. For this, how do they know with how? without three of them flaking out at the last <laughs> second. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, oh, turns out I double booked that day. weekend. Oh, yeah. I can't make it. <laughs> I have a 5K. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so that everyone was really just dedicated big, to this. Big work this project murder. that weekend. And props to the group. 
Uh, Emily, on that note, we've hit time again. It has been a treat, though. Thank you. you I'm going to bring that word back into my personal life. I think you should, and I will also, and we will on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So let me um, also thank you, Emily, and, and give everybody a heads up on our final book of 2023 we can't believe it the nine tailors by dorothy sayers it might be her masterpiece although there's much debate as to whether it's her best novel some people say it's gowdy knight many argue it's her finest literary achievement the murder method in this story published in 1934 was unique the idea came from a sixpenny pamphlet that explained bell ringing Learn more about the nine tailors at tetonicandtoxin.com. Share your thoughts on our website or on Facebook and Instagram at tetonicandtoxin. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave us your five-star reviews. Yes, please. Everywhere you get your podcast, we are there. All right. Thanks again, Emily. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you both. And until next time, stay mysterious. 